Welcome to Brazos Matters. I'm Jay Sokol. My guest today is Jamie Masterson, director of the Texas Target Communities Program at Texas A&M University. Jamie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. I think you are an intriguing person. We have never met until today, (laughs) but here's why I think you're unique. Okay. So I spent more than two decades being uh, a communications and marketing guy for government entities, two cities and a state agency. And before that, I was in the news business. So I know what it looks like for jurisdictions to try to prepare, Mm -hmm. Uh, prepare for disaster, prepare for growth, Mm -hmm. prepare for everyday things like maintaining streets and utilities, infrastructure, and those sorts of things. Even prepare to recover when bad things happen. Yeah. And the people around the table for those conversations are typically elected officials, the fire chief, the police chief, Mm -hmm. uh, an emergency management coordinator, a planning director, an economic development director, and so on. But based on what I've read about you, you're a little bit of all those people rolled into one. Am <laughs> yeah. I wrong? So I have a planning background, um, but I'm. Uh, we work with small communities across the state to assist them with these issues that you just mentioned, all of these things, um, typically small cities. So um, yeah, s- small cities themselves wear multiple hats. And so we find ourselves also wearing multiple hats and assisting them where they need, um, where they need help, where they need assistance. So talk to me about what your personal background is yeah. and, and the work that you and your students do with these communities. So I uh, have a bachelor's of landscape architecture and a master of urban planning. And um, don't be afraid by the term urban planning. We do city and regional planning work. Um, but I also have a certificate of environmental hazard management. And so uh, my background is also in disaster planning. And so we work with communities across the state to include their needs into the classroom as projects. And that can be a variety of different things, Um, but we are working with communities that are typically vulnerable to a range of different issues. Um, Some are hazards, uh, some are um, other external shocks and issues. And so, um, yeah, we we find ourselves being our own jack of all trades and and assisting communities in those ways. So what do your students actually do what yeah. what are they getting a chance to <laughs> to learn and practice so we have traditionally so our program is 30 years old now um, we've traditionally worked with the urban planning program and so we have a lot of planning students um, as their background that are trying to they're learning how to become city and regional planners and so in their courses that they take, they are essentially working with the communities as their assignments, as their projects. And we work hand in hand with the community. The students are going there. Um, they're uh, meeting lots of different types of people, lots of different types of stakeholders and residents, um, trying to grapple with a range of different issues that uh, folks talk about. And um, so those are the types of students that we typically work with. But over the years, we've also recognized that there's many different challenges beyond planning that communities have and so through the planning process we often identify other issues that um, the community might have and so we like in Texas target communities to be a matchmaker of sorts and um, point um, communities to other resources and expertise and assets that we have on this campus mm-hmm. so we've worked with engineering we've worked with public health we've worked with a range of different faculty that can assist the community with the different needs that they're identifying now 
are the <laughs> students actually walking away? It, it sounds like they're getting a lot of hands-on yes. uh, experience, but yeah. when they are out trying to get their first jobs out of school mm-hmm. and they are saying to prospective employers, here's what I know how to do. These are the skill sets I have. What do those look like? Yeah, so lots of data collection, um, lots of assessments and reports, uh, taking secondary um, data and and, um, looking at demographic analyses, economic trends, um, looking at housing trends as well. Um, But beyond that, they're looking at growth patterns, uh, future land use, um, development opportunities. Um, they, some of the students have transportation focus, um, and so they're looking at how to develop thoroughfare plans and um, looking at uh, traffic counts and mobility and access um, in those communities. Other things that they can do um, would be, I would say, community engagement. That's a, mm-hmm. um, a cornerstone for our program. Uh, we really pivoted um, when John Cooper, our director emeritus, came on in 2012. He really wanted to make sure that this was not just a, a exercise for students, but that it was truly going to benefit communities. So um, the students that work with our program, there is a certain training that they go through in how to talk to people and how to facilitate a meeting and ways of being in communication. That is, you know, how to translate what you know into something that makes sense for someone else. Um, That whole meeting environment, that can be treacherous. (laughs) I I mean, that's where some um, citizen passions tend to come out yeah so how do you equip your students to be ready for that right yeah no it's um it's a it can be hard for the students when they're first going into a community and we tell them you know folks are going to come with those passions you know and it might come out um as frustration sometimes but that just means that they really care about their community Hmm. so the way we coach the students is hey remember it's not about you you know and this is a, a semester project a year project and and th- this is going to be more meaningful for the community. They're the ones who are staying, right? You're only going to touch this place for a very short amount of time. So detach yourself a little bit from the emotions um, and recognize that you don't have to have all the answers. Mm-hmm. We're not expecting you to have all the answers. The, the community certainly isn't. And so um, just to stay in your lane and um, if there are you know, things that of concern that our staff at Texas Target Communities and at the university, we can help facilitate some of those and, and, and work with the community because we're going to be there for the longer haul than just a semester. Right. So, so yeah. your students who take part in this, <laughs> do they tend to go into the public sector to where they're working for jurisdictions in those capacities to have to bring that knowledge of of planning and community engagement and so forth to the jurisdiction itself or do, do they tend to go into the private sector on the consulting side yeah it's actually pretty split mm. um, we used to think we had more students going to the public sector but I think there's been a, a, a bigger market um, in the last few years for um, more consulting work and so our students are going that direction but we also I forgot to mention we work with um, our architecture faculty and design faculty so obviously that's a bit more on the consulting side and so our architecture faculty and landscape architecture faculty, those those students are going off into firms and, and other design um, consultancies. So. Okay. So a couple of words that I found on your website, on the Texas Target Communities Program website, talked about 
working with underserved communities and to help create resilience. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, when does a community deserve to be described as underserved? What Mm -hmm. does that mean? And also, what does it mean? uh, What does resilience mean? What does that look Mm -hmm. like? Yeah. Yeah. So underserved, um, typically and traditionally, we've worked with cities that are less than 15,000 in population. So our rural communities, um, they're underserved in a lot of different ways. There's fewer grants out there for them. Um, I We know that our planning um, profession does not necessarily serve the smaller communities as much because of the fact that they might have as many resources to pay for such services, right? right? right. So um, we are, you know, they, a community themselves might describe themselves as low capacity or they, they just don't have the people and the resources to do the things that they need to do. Um, but we have also worked with rural counties and we've also worked with inner city neighborhoods. So um, our program has become a little bit more flexible depending on the need. So, um, you know, the other the other thing we're looking at as we're identifying communities is what are some of their issues? Like, do they have an express need? So if there are higher number of uh, the population that's in a vulnerable area, so in a floodplain, mm. um, if there's a higher percentage that might be in poverty, you know, th- those those are sort of indicators that they would be a good uh, fit for our program and we would want to serve them in the, the best ways we can. When we think about resilience, you know, since I have a background in disasters, I always kind of think of those who are going to be vulnerable to different types of hazards. Um, but I think our program definitely were more comprehensive about it. So um, vulnerable to a range of different external stressors. Um, and that could be population loss um, in our rural areas. That sort of brain drain is something that they talk about a lot. Yeah. Um, and other sort of things, larger impacts like COVID. Uh, we worked with the city of Rockport, and I know, you know, they had just experienced Hurricane Harvey. So oh, we yeah. kind of prioritized working with them when they reached out to us. Um, and if you don't know, that community is a kind of a tourist-based economy. So certainly that was a stressor that impacted their economy and, um, you know, population loss because of the disaster and trying to get people back in the community. But then right after Harvey, as soon as they were somewhat um, recovering, you know, COVID hit. And then that had another impact on um you know, um, the, the, the economy and the tourism. And so those, those are, of course, we didn't anticipate something like COVID, but we, we want to think about it in a more holistic way as we're assisting communities, um, especially our underserved and lower capacity. Well, let's stick with Rockport as an example. So what did you end up doing for them? And, yeah. and what was that leave behind? So they reached out to us, um, about six to eight months after Harvey hit. Uh, they were going through a long-term recovery planning process, and they did have a planner, which some of the, most of the places we work with don't have planners, but um, she reached out and she said, you know, we before Harvey hit, we actually wanted to do a comprehensive city plan, which is mm-hmm. the community's guiding document. It looks at economic development, housing, parks and recreation, transportation, infrastructure, those kind of things. So could your program assist us in developing this 
20-year vision and guidance document. And so that they something that was very important to them as Harvey was fresh on their minds, like we're going to be rebuilding. So let's what is the next 20 years going to look like as we rebuild? Um, so our students, we paired um, trying to remember <laughs> six, I think six or seven classes that um, worked on different aspects of the plan. So we walked through a visioning exercise with mm-hmm. them. They established a vision. They identified specific goals um, from that vision that they wanted to achieve. And then from their very specific actions. Um, and um, it, it was, we included resilience in terms of hazards. Um, how do we think about disasters going forward throughout all elements of those uh, of the plan? So how is our economy going to shift in the next 20 years because of, as we think about disasters? Um, so we also worked with um, a, uh, with a law school, Texas A&M Law School, partnered with us to provide some specific land use regulatory guidance that would help the the city be more resilient to flood impacts. Um, and we also worked with Texas Tech in the process. Uh, they had a landscape architecture studio that um, provided some downtown design mm. and guidance. And we also worked with our Texas A&M Corpus Christi um, right there in their backyard. Um, we, we engaged the youth and we had a very specific targeted, what did the youth want for this uh, for their community in the next 20 years since they're gonna be the future leaders. So. Was there a cost to the city of Rockport for what you were bringing to them? Yes, there is a cost for communities to participate and it does fluctuate uh, depending on the size of the community and the size of the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and the distance. So um, the big cost comes from travel and um, materials and supplies. And I'll say it's not supporting our salaries that the university is covering that, but it does support student internship opportunities to work with our program. And that helps us prepare for the projects before the classes get going in the fall or the spring. And it helps us Um, better complete the projects after the students finish their course. Because as you know, once the students get their final Mm -hmm. grade, they are off. Yes, they are. (laughs) And so we make sure that it, we get it to where the community wants it to be. And so sometimes that takes a little bit extra time on the back end. Well, I asked about cost because for a city, using College Station as an example, that goes through a comprehensive planning process that you just described, it costs a lot of money. So I'm guessing what you're able to bring to these smaller jurisdictions is uh, far less costly. Yes, it's a fraction of the cost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a huge value. Um, If you are just tuned in, uh, I'm Jay Sokol. You're listening to Brazos Matters, and my guest is Jamie Masterson, director of the Texas Target Communities Program at Texas A&M University. So I'm going to mention some communities that I Mm -hmm. think you've worked with, and I want you to say whatever comes to mind. So I don't know if this is a lightning (laughs) round or what it is, (laughs) but but I'm curious to know what comes to mind and maybe how you how you worked with them in in some way or what you what Mm -hmm. you discovered uh, when working with these communities. Bastrop. Housing, and um, that was a big topic when we worked with them was a housing needs assessment. And that was Mm, that was 10 or so years ago now. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that a lot has changed since then. They also, we did a um, 
asset mapping exercise with them for their social services that they had in the community. So that was very important to connect their um, lower capacity residents to different social services that they already had in the community. Okay. Yeah. Caldwell. We did a comprehensive plan with them. And so when I think about them, um, we, we did it during COVID. And so wow. imagine a small community, 2,000 in population, not super active on social media, now engaging virtually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we did it. And um, and they have accomplished so much since in a very, very short amount of time. It's been just a couple of years. Ivanhoe, which I have to admit, I don't know where Ivanhoe is. Ivanhoe is in Tyler County. Okay. Um, very small, uh, almost, it feels almost like a subdivision. Um, a s- wonderful little lake community. Um, a big issue there was they were primarily um, had a residential tax base. They had two businesses in the city. So that is that is very challenging for a city um, to rely all of their funds for infrastructure on on ha- on rooftops, essentially. Mm. So, OK, Gonzalez. Gonzalez. Um, Gonzalez. Full of history. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're going back. Uh, that was in 2013. You're kind of testing me. It's like a quiz. Right? right? <laughs> we, um, we, that, we worked with Gonzalez before we kind of re-envisioned the program to be very community-engaged centered, but they, we also did a comprehensive plan with them. And um, still in touch with um, some of the task force members, some of the community folks that we worked with there. Um, uh, I still get emails from Carolyn. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Good. How about Grimes County? Grimes County, uh, we also did a thoroughfare plan with them. This was actually more of a just a student master's project. So we can work with a course uh, or several courses with a community. And sometimes there's just a passionate student who wants to take it on as their big um, thesis project or master's project. So mm-hmm. that was the case there. And she actually um, physically interned at the city as, or the county as well and worked hand in hand with their um, county engineer. And that was a, a big deal. Um, still is. Uh, Grimes County is experiencing lots of growth and, and sort of the, the big question mark for them was the high speed rail potential. Right, yeah. right. I'll give you one more. How about LaGrange? LaGrange. We've worked with them so many times. Um, They were one of our first communities in the early 90s. We did their first comprehensive plan. We went back and worked with them in 2017 for their comprehensive plan. Um, And we we worked with them right when Harvey hit. So they were also impacted. I don't know if folks remember. And so we were in the midst of helping them while they were recovering. Um, We also did housing needs assessment for them. And also most recently last year, we did a police plan, which we have never done before. They came back to us and they said, your process benefited us so much and how you engaged with different stakeholders and, and residents and different people. And we want to make sure that our police department has that same opportunity. So we did. So yeah. what is a police department plan? What did they look like? So we talked, you know, we had a, a task force of community stakeholders that um, let's say, for instance, like the ISD was involved. We had um, mental services involved. We had church leaders involved, um, a range of different folks who kind of touch aspects of what the police do. Mm-hmm. And then we, um, so we had a number of different meetings with them, hearing from them. We then also spoke sp- 
specifically to the staff, to the officers, and some of their challenges and some of the needs that they had, which were some community level needs, but some that were sort of just administrative, you know, needs. And, um, and then we went out and actually talked to residents um, through surveys and other sort of focus group discussions. And um, essentially, we pull best practices. This is what other police departments and other um, efforts are doing around the country. And then we try to figure out what's going to make the most sense based on the, um, the feedback that we hear from community members and, and those different stakeholder groups. So let me use the example of my hometown, which is Breckenridge, Texas, home of the buckaroos, (laughs) Uh, small oil town that was prosperous decades ago Mm -hmm. and has declined in a number of ways ever since then. So Mm -hmm. not enough industry, aging population, limited tax base, crumbling infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It's kind of sad as as a hometown guy going back. So what if they wanted to have... Texas target communities help chart a path for greater success. How would they even start that process? How would they contact yeah, us? Yeah, I mean, what do they do if they if they learn yeah. about you guys and then what? Then then we talk. Okay. <laughs> we um, so we ha- we do have an annual call for community projects, which goes out in January. Um, but honestly, the program has been a lot of just uh, word of mouth, and we haven't had to share too much about it because communities will hear, and neighboring communities will hear what we've done, and then they just reach out to us, cold call or email, and so we just have to have a conversation with them. And we um, like to know what are those issues that are bubbling up to the surface. We also want to know, um, you know, who, what does the leadership look like? Um, and are they ready for this kind of a process, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not just something that we want to just sit on a shelf. And so it, that means it needs to be more than just one passionate leader or one passionate community member, it, there has to be a range of different stakeholders that can come to the table. So we want to make sure we're hearing lots of different voices in the community. And we want to make sure we've got folks who are ready to come to the table and have those conversations. And um, we we say pretty, pretty up front, like, don't brush up anything under the rug, mm. right? Like, let's get it all out in the open. Right. And that's going to make for a better process. It's going to make for a um, uh, it's going to make for a better project in the end for the community that they ac- they can actually adopt plans and go and actually implement the plans. Um, and that's been the case with a lot of different communities we've worked with. Well, you brought up a, a very important point. So often these plans cost a lot of money. Um, they are completed and they go on the shelf or the virtual shelf and mm-hmm. they don't, they're not fully implemented. Yeah. And how do you help these communities um, do better than that. Yeah, it, it, it's all about that engagement process that we establish from the beginning. Hmm. So um, I'll give the example for Comanche County, but this is the way we do it in all of our communities. We establish first a community task force, and that task force, they're going to be there from the beginning to the end of our process. Right. And that can be a year. It can be 18 months. It just kind of depends. And they're representing the range of different communities within the community. And they don't necessarily need to be an official leader. In fact, we typically say elected officials might not be, that might not be the best space for them to participate. Mm-hmm. 
So then that task force, they're guiding us the whole way through and they act as a conduit for us to connect with the different communities within the community. And we really lean on them. But then we have these separate focus group conversations with lots of different types of stakeholder groups. Um, and then we reach out to the public and we have large scale workshops and interactive activities and ways for the voice of, the, of any resident to participate if they can. In Comanche, um, it was so effective that that effort um, that the task force then decided to f- each goal that they had, which we actually they're they're called badges for them. They wanted them to be like a badge that they were earning, okay. and those badges now have their own task forces. And those are just made up of residents and passionate community members that want to make sure like one of their badges is multi-generational opportunities. So they want to make sure that there's things for their kids and older populations in their community. And so they have a whole task force around that to now implement the action items that are in the plan. And um, we've heard from them recently that they've been able to connect with agencies across the region, our state representatives, our national and federal representatives, in that effort as they, it's almost been like this snowball effect of civic participation of we can do this um, and and we're and we're doing something about it right now, we're rolling up our sleeves and we're gonna do this. That's inspiring for me to hear because Comanche County is not so far from Breckenridge and oh, okay. Stevens County. Oh yeah. And for, for a community like that to embrace the process and see it through and, and be aspirational about it. That's that's really terrific. That's yeah. terrific to hear. Mm-hmm. So it's frustrating because I have so many more questions for you and we're mm-hmm. down to the last couple of minutes. Oh, but no. I wanted to give you a chance <laughs> to give uh, kind of an elevator pitch to anyone who may be out there uh, anywhere in the Brazos Valley listening um, who might be interested in the services of Texas Target Communities Program. Give me that pitch. Yeah, I would say, um, I'll directly quote the city of Nolanville. They said, you know, we used to think we were too small for this kind of stuff. And now we know we can do it because we're small. So they've embraced their nimbleness and their adaptiveness um, and their their what their character, who they are. And so um, I, I guess I would just encourage small communities. If you're if you're like, oh, that can't happen here. Um, I, I can prove you wrong. <laughs> I can point you and I'll give you phone numbers of communities where it, it, it can work. Um, and so don't be too discouraged. Um, sometimes for us, it's about finding that community champion and a, and a couple different folks who are, are willing to walk through the process with us. So Brazos Valley, you know, we, we've worked in a couple communities in the Brazos Valley, but we would love to work with more communities in our own backyard. Um, but we only go to places where we're invited. Right. So we got to be invited. <laughs> and I'll just say, too, there could be an opportunity for communities to work together. Um, if you're feeling a little like, oh, I don't know if we can do this alone, it could be something where we combine our efforts and, and we're stronger together. So Website where people can learn more. You can email me at texastargetcommunities at tamu.edu. We also, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, it's at tamutxtc. We have a new scholarship fund for those who want to donate, and we also have a good neighbor fund for folks who are feeling like giving to the smaller communities that cannot afford to, to work with us. So, 
Jamie Masterson, thank you so much for the talk. Thank you. Brazos Matters is a production of Aggieland's Public Radio, 90.9 KAMU-FM, a member of Texas A&M University's Division of Marketing and Communications. Our show is engineered and edited by Matt Dippman, and you can learn more about us at kamu.tamu.edu slash radio.